Yes. Huh? Oh, I thought we did. No? Yeah? Well, we'll pray again. Let's pray right now. Lord, I just pray specifically for Tatiana and the, the challenges she's going through. Uh, just thank you for uh, your faithfulness to us. Help us to be faithful to you, not only in her struggles and the challenges that we've talked about, but also just in every aspect of our life. As we get into the Word today, uh, Lord, I just pray that our, our hearts and minds would be focused and uh, that we would uh, listen to the teaching of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that does uh, that ultimately does the teaching, and so we trust that you are at work in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so... <laughs> so I, I learned from experience that I need to hand these out at the beginning, and that experience is my wife told me uh, that I have to. So... Um, yeah. All right, so... Uh, Appreciate everybody's uh, patience, not just with some of the stuff in the class this morning, but also with with our pastor's heart as he shared uh, this morning. Uh, we did have our pastor's retreat this week. Uh, evidently, there was a lot of whining uh, at that retreat uh, per the pastor. I don't exactly remember it occurring that way, but uh, but he he must have seen it as such. So. Um, and Dennis, I forgot to grab that keyboard. If you could bring that up for me, that would be would be wonderful. So, as you remember, we do uh, three lessons out of the book of Exodus in our series on the victory uh, in the book of Exodus. Uh, but we also, once a month, basically, take some time uh, to do a, a question and answer. And so, as a reminder... If you have a question, I can get you, you can just bring it up to me directly or, uh, you know, after class, or you can submit it on our portal. Uh, Again, I'd be happy to show you where that is. Uh, These questions submitted in advance in part because of our schedule, right? And in part because I want to make sure that I give you a comprehensive answer. And we have folks in this room, folks that would be listening either online or later online, um, that need different levels of, they're at different levels of spiritual growth, so they need different levels of answers, right? And so as a result, I try to prepare a message and I prepare a lesson that can try to hit as many folks in that range as possible. So I try to take the time not to just answer off the cuff, but to answer well so that it applies and that many can can understand. So this week, the, the question is, and also, Dennis, in that little white basket, I think, is a small white remote. If you press the button, these lights will come on. Or they won't. Okay. Well, I'm dark on the screen. There. Wow. And you all said in that moment I should have put powder on my head. Okay, so, thank you. So, the question that was submitted, again, it was a few weeks back, but the question is, uh, an individual was reading, and I won't, I won't call you out, whoever, whoever submits questions, um, except in a couple cases, and I'll make sure that we're good with that. But the question here is, in Hebrews 5.8, the verse uh, references that Jesus learned something. So, though he were a son, clearly referencing Jesus, yet he 
learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. So, the question then becomes, Jesus is clearly the Son of God and had glory with God before he came down. We know that from John 17. This is all the question, okay? Uh, how is it that Jesus learned obedience being God? So, if he was God who knows all things, how did he learn something, right? Is this because he literally was fashioned as a man? Philippians 2.8. Is this because his perfection and glory is something he willingly gave up for us, right, uh, when he came down? Okay? Do you understand the question? The question at its core is, how did Jesus learn something? He yet learned he obedience. How did Jesus learn something when he, in fact, was God in the flesh? Okay? So that's really the core. So it, it starts with a, a statement here. And so we're going to kind of go do these in order. Jesus is clearly the Son of God and had glory with God before he came down. We know that according to John 17, 5. Again, that was a question. We actually know it from this verse, though he was a son, right? So from Hebrews 5, uh, and you should turn to Hebrews if you're not there yet. You should turn to Hebrews chapter 5. We're going to look at a few verses uh, out of Hebrews chapter 5. And so uh, let me get there as well. So though he was a son, not just a son of man, but the son of God. So though he was a son, clearly defines Jesus' relationship with the Father. In John 1, 1 through 3, the lineage that is listed of Jesus in the book of John. So there's a very comprehensive lineage listed in the book of Matthew that focuses on Jesus being in the kingly lineage. There's no uh, reference to a genealogy in the book of Mark because in there he is pictured as a servant and people don't particularly care about the lineage of a servant. In the book of Luke, we have the lineage all the way from Adam to Jesus because it proves that he is a man. Luke focuses on, on man, but John, in his lineage, he addresses it in John chapter 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's his lineage. Boom. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything that was made. So, Jesus, being present with God, being uh, or being present in heaven, part of the Trinity, part uh, present at the creation, an active participant in the creation, how is it that he could learn something? Well, John 10, 30, I and my Father are one. He reinforces his position in the Trinity. John 17, 5, And now, Father, O Father, glorify thou me with thine, own, um, with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Before he came down, before the, even the world was created, Jesus had a glory with the Father. And he, is, at one point in, in his prayer uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, is asking God to glorify him with that same glory. Basically to restore the relationship uh, after his sacrifice that he knows is coming. Notice in Genesis 1, 26, And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, using plural on, on purpose, because God is a trinity. So, Jesus was in fact at the foundation of the world. He created, he, he was active participant in the creation of the world. He was part of the trinity that made it. So, how is it that he 
learned something. So it's 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 pretty. So so what I did, and I put little boxes in your first section, so we can check this first one. We agree with the premise of the question. Jesus is clearly the Son of God, and did have a glory with God before He came down. We can check that one. Okay, we're good with that one. Then the next question is. So, so we're actually going to skip this one for just a second, and I'm going to go to the third part of the question. Is this because he literally was fashioned as a man? Okay. Is this because he was literally... So, again, foundational understanding, he was fashioned as a man. So the, this part of the question is, um, you know, is valid, at least, right? In Philippians 2.8, which they referenced in their submission... Philippians 2.8 says, and being found in fashion as a man. So we know Jesus was fashioned in earthly flesh. Notice also in 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God, even though it's a trinity, he's a trinity, and one mediator between God and men. And notice Paul is very specific in this language that he used, the man Christ Jesus. It's not just Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ is the mediator, the man, Christ Jesus, because of his payment for his, uh, our sins, which we'll, we'll talk more about in a minute, because of that, the man, Christ Jesus, is the mediator. So he was fashioned as a man. In John 1.14, And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld the glory, his glory, as the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So we know from these verses and others that he was, in fact, fashioned as a man, right? He was all God and yet all man. It's hard to wrap our brains around. It's something we have to take in to, to some degree measure of faith because it's hard to understand. So we can check the, the third box, right? Jesus was, in fact, had glory. He came down. He was the Son of God and had glory. And we know that he was fashioned as a man. So now we're going to jump back up to the second one. And is it, the question is, how is it that Jesus learned obedience being God? How is it that Jesus learned obedience being God? Well, we have to be careful with the question logic. Okay? Now, I'm going to take a little bit of a sidebar for a moment. And I'm going to do what some of my... Junior high, maybe elementary uh, school kids, maybe as much as freshmen in, in high school, they'll say things like, has your girlfriend told people you're beating her yet? Because they're joking. How do you answer that? If you say yes, it implies that you've been beating her. If you say no, it implies that you've been beating her. Right? Are you with me? Sometimes the posturing of the question draws a conclusion already. And the reason I'm pointing this out in this context is because the frame of reference of the question is actually wrong. Okay? Now I say that in love. I don't like I frame questions wrong all the time. But we have to be careful when we frame questions and 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 the logic associated with them. The posturing so the the very famous philosophical question can God make a rock he can't move? They're presuming with the question that God has limitations, right? 
Does God have limitations? Ah, au contraire, mon frère, which is my new favorite phrase to say. He does. He sends people to help. He doesn't pull them out. He doesn't violate his own word. So he does have limitations. So, my response to people, and I think I've said it in this class before, does God create, a, or can God create a rock he can't move? I respond with, he created a hell he can't pull you out of. If you willingly march into hell, you're going to stay there forever. So yeah, he can create something he can't do. That's the, the awesomeness, actually, of God. Is that he is willing to put constraints on his own power. So, we have to always be careful with the question logic. This question is, is this learning, I, add, I think I added that, is this the concept of learning because he was literally fashioned as a man? So, the common definition of learning is the gaining of knowledge. If you were to maybe go online and Google the definition of learning, it's that concept that something that was formally not, or, or yeah, formally, historically not known, is now known. Okay? That's what we commonly think of with the word learning. But that's not the only definition. We also know, and I mentioned this a moment ago, God is omniscient. So God has different characteristics. He's omnipresent, meaning he's present in all places at all times at the same time. He's everywhere at the same time, right? But he's also omniscient, which is a wor basically a fancy word of saying he's all-knowing. So how, which is really kind of the, the root, the heart of the question that's proposed is, how did God, Jesus, as the Son of God, learn something? Okay? And this concept of learning obedience is really important. It's really important that Jesus learned obedience. So this is not just some tactical picking some uh, obscure verse out. Okay? Especially because we're going to dig into Hebrews 5 a little more in just a moment. It's really important, actually. The premise that Jesus learned obedience is really important. And I believe practical for our lives today. Not just doctrinally, but practically. So this presumption is that learning is the gaining of knowledge and therefore only a human trait. Right? So if you say, because of the, the, the way the posturing of the question is, is it the humanness of Jesus that learned obedience? Okay? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to challenge the posturing of the question. I'm going to challenge it, I believe, scripturally. I hope at the end of this that whoever submitted it is not frustrated with me that I called out the, the premise of the question, but it's important for me to be transparent and not have an agenda, okay? Because I want people to, to ask questions honestly from their heart, and I want to try to answer them biblically, okay? That's very important to me, okay? So the, pr the question presumes that learning is a human trait, and that, therefore, was only on the human part of Jesus. But Jesus, the humanness, and Jesus, the divine, are inseparable, okay? So Jesus couldn't have learned obedience. Okay? He couldn't have learned obedience. I didn't take the time to go into Luke 
and I think it's the Gospel of Luke when Jesus goes back to or leaves his parents at the temple, right? And and that we could have gone there as well because the the people are so astonished. The the teachers are so astonished at his understanding at such a young age. Well, he didn't learn need to learn anything because he was God in the flesh. Okay, all right. So as we continue, so the, I'm going to rephrase the verse. And I'm, I always try to be very transparent when I do this for the purposes of illustration. I am not, I want to be very clear, I am not correcting scripture, okay? Rephrasing the ber- verse and replacing the word learning to, to, to show a contrast. Was it, though he were a son, yet he gained knowledge of obedience by the things which he suffered? Or... Is it, though he were a son, yet he experienced obedience by the things which he suffered? Spoiler alert, it's the second. Okay? But I want to I build my argument. Okay? So the first rule of Bible study is context. First rule of Bible study is context. You can find in Scripture that Scripture says there is no God. It's the most common example in this because in the book of Proverbs, a couple places it says... The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. So like a good reporter, I could pull the verse out of context, and, or a phrase in this case, and posture it incorrectly. But so you have to understand the context of what's going on. That's why, like it or not, politicians are always so careful with their words, and you always feel like they just talked for 10 minutes, and they didn't really answer the question. It's because, in part, they're coached to be very careful that their words can't be or to limit to the ability, their own ability, the, the, the chance to take their words out of context. Okay? So they're often very vanilla in their answers and sometimes don't even answer the question because maybe the question presumes, you know, can God move a rock or make a rock he can't move? Right? So sometimes they dodge questions because they are, in fact, being painted into a corner. All right, so Hebrew... I'm sorry? Or they have dementia, or maybe they aren't as learned as, as maybe a physician. So, um, so in Hebrews chapter 5, let's look at, so Hebrews chapter 5. Notice our verse 8 that we're focused on. Though he were a son. Okay? Though he were a son is actually kind of showing a little mini contrast here. It's like, although he were a son... There were these things going on, right? But what is the context of math or of Hebrews chapter 5? And you see it on the screen. It's on your paper. Priests. Notice verse 1. For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Okay? That's what a priest does, right? Continue on down in verse 6. And he saith also in another place, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Referring to Jesus in verse 5. We have our verse in verse 8 that we're focused on, but notice down in verse 10, called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek. We are not going to take the... If you think, oh, finally, I get the answer to... The, who is Melchizedek in the Bible? That is not what we're looking at today. The key here, and if, the, if that... 
Somebody's going to submit that, and I will point them to an LFBI course that addresses it. And there's differing opinions, and they are all like, you know, I don't, there's a common phrase out there about opinions. I use a different one than the one you might be thinking of. I say opinions are like armpits because everybody's got a couple and they all stink, right? Um, so, so, um, but with respect to Jesus is a priest, Hebrews chapter 5 is identifying that part of his ministry, okay? So let's learn about priestly work for just a moment. Priestly work. Priests experienced the sacrifice more than anyone, including those that the sacrifice was for. In the Old Testament, I'm, uh, I was going to say I'm Mitch Dobson, but I probably would have a really cool Jewish name. I don't know. Um, I don't know. What's a cool Jewish name? Abe. Abe Bagoda. Okay. I'm Abe, and I am going to take, and, and I'm going to have my bullock, and I am, or my ram, I'm going to have my turtle doves, I'm going to have my, I'm going to bring them to the tabernacle at one point, to the temple at another point in the Old Testament, and I'm going to ask the priest to make the sacrifice. How involved am I in that process? Well, I'm fairly involved. I bring it to the temple or the tabernacle. But what do I do? I hand it off and say goodbye because it's not going to survive the day. And I turn around and walk away. Or I may stand there and watch, you know, from outside, praying to God. But I'm not very involved in that sacrifice from that point forward. I don't know of anywhere in Scripture where the person who brings the sacrifice is invited in to hold, to slit the throat, to spread the blood, to take care. No. That was the priest's work. I mean, it was, it was, it was dirty work. We're going to see in three verses here in Leviticus, and I just pulled out, I guess four with the, or five with the four to six, but I just picked out the first kind of few. Look in Leviticus 1.15, And the priest shall bring it to the, unto the altar and wring off its head and burn it on the altar. And the blood thereof shall be wrung out on, uh, at the side of the altar. Like, I don't know if you've ever watched... I'm, one of my guilty pleasures is watching uh, a, a, a headline, headline News Network. Is that headline? Well, uh, oh, what's that? Uh, um, forensic Files. I couldn't think of the word. Forensic Files. Anybody watch Forensic Files in here? Yeah? Okay. We have a past, another pastor on staff here that's like a big Forensic Files fan, right? <laughs> forensic Files is a guilty pleasure. Michelle's been watching the cookies stuff before the holidays. That's more wholesome because it's like eating cookies. I'm like, so this person was murdered and their blood was all in this room. And where they always bring in that, I can't remember the, the chemical, and they spray it around and then they turn on the black lights and you could see where all the blood was, right? If they did that where the was it'd be everywhere <laughs> this was bloody work but we're not even 15 verses into Leviticus 1 talking about the sacrifices and we're wringing off heads and we're just pouring the blood on the side of the altar we get all the way to Leviticus 3 and he shall lay his hand upon the head of his offering and kill it at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation and Aaron's sons the priest shall sprinkle the blood upon the altar round about Yikes. Yikes. That's bloody work. 
Leviticus 4, 4-6, And he shall bring the bullock of the, unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord, and shall lay his hand upon the bullock's head, and kill the bullock before the Lord. And the priest that is anointed shall take the blood of the, uh, the bullock's blood and bring it to the tabernacle of the congregation. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle the blood seven times before the Lord, before the veil of the sanctuary. Ladies and gentlemen, there is no one more involved and more intimately uh, involved in the sacrifice than the priest. Or other than the sacrifice itself, maybe. Like, the priest, eh, you know, he goes home after his long day, honey. How was, how was your work? That was a bloody day. Uh-oh. Yeah, he doesn't do one of these, that's for sure. <laughs> Is that what you're doing? Yeah. I mean, nasty. I, I, don't, I don't think I could handle that. I don't think I could handle it. I obviously grew up in a different time. and So the priest experienced the sacrifice more than anyone else. The, also, the priest had the responsibility of laying the sacrifice on the altar. In Leviticus 1.12, And he shall cut it into his pieces with his head and his fat, and the priest shall lay them in order on the wood that is on the fire which is upon the altar. And the fire upon the altar shall be burning it, in Leviticus uh, 6.12, and it shall shall not be put out. And the priest shall burn on it every morning and lay the burnt offering in order upon it, and he shall burn thereon the fat of the peace offerings. Like, it's not just the job to slay and to spread the blood around and wring it out and all that stuff. He also then has to lay it on the altar. If it's not, I don't, I can't recall an, uh, a sacrifice that's slayed on the altar, which is which is a whole other doctrinal implication, I think. But the priest experienced the sacrifice more than anybody else, and the priest had the responsibility of putting putting the sacrifice on the altar. So, what's that mean for our study? Go back to the book of Hebrews, but we're going to go back a chapter. Chapter 4, Hebrews chapter 4, 14 and 15. Now, part of the reason the book of Hebrews, Paul, I believe Paul was the writer of Hebrews, is addressing that Christ fulfilled the law. So, he's, he's making an argument to Jews, Hebrews, that didn't believe that Jesus was a Messiah. He's actually referencing things in the Old Testament, explaining that Jesus fits the bill. So Jesus is, in fact, our high priest. Um, Hebrews 4, 14 and 15. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. So again, he's showing the contrast of although he was the Son of God, He was our high priest. Let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which not be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus was our high priest. And that's honestly one of the things that makes Christianity, true biblical Christianity, fundamentally different from any other faith base, any other religion, if you will, is no one else claims their God came, experienced what man experiences every day, yet was pure, and was willingly his own uh, was willingly offered himself to pay for the sins of the others. Nobody else has that faith-based proposition, and that's what gets me. Honestly, I mean this in all sincerity and all love. 
gets me a little frustrated when people feel like they have to do things to work their way to heaven. Because if you have to do something to work your way to heaven, why did Jesus, the Son of God, come to the earth and die? Like, he would have just given us a list of stuff to do. And you say, well, he did give us a list of stuff to do. Not to get to heaven. It was very clear, even in the Old Testament, the very detailed list of stuff that we've just barely touched on was just to put them in a position so they had the opportunity to hear Jesus at when, during his, the days when he was, uh, had not yet resurrected and he went down and preached unto the captivity in the center of the earth. It just gave them an opportunity to hear the gospel. So why, do well, I know why we do it, it's unreasonable... And I try to be very patient with people when I'm sharing the gospel with them. And they say things like, but I've been a good person. Not good enough. I mean, that's, I'm, I'm really glad that you've not done things wrong. I really am. I don't want you to go out and do bad things. But you've not been good enough. If I was driving home today, and I'm going 100 miles an hour down I-70, and a police officer pulls me over... I don't get the opportunity to recite all the times I came to a complete stop. I've used my blinker every time I've changed lanes, sir or ma'am. I mean, when I left Midtown and I was on 40th Street, I stayed below the speed limit. I came, when I turned left, I made sure I yield to oncoming traffic. I didn't call, he, he or she does not care. I broke the law by driving 100 miles on I-70 and that has an account. I'm going to have to pay for that. Well, hope I mean, I don't know if I can pay for that. Like, I don't know if you can just get out of that ticket by paying. I don't know. But I don't get to recite. But, but officer, I'm a good dude. I was ministering. I was preaching the Bible to people. I mean, the other day, I was helping folks and, with a charity... I was doing all this. Hey, sir, you were driving 100 miles an hour on I-70. You were breaking the law. It doesn't matter. Oh, oh, okay, let's back it down a little bit. 100's too big. Let's say I was driving 60. I, this is a true story. I got a ticket on I-70 where it's 45 miles an hour. Did you know it's 45? Somebody, somebody else did that exact same look to me. I didn't know it was 45 and on the... No, on the... The north side, the north side of downtown, kind of by the river market area. It's 45. See, that's what I said to the police officer, and he said, "I don't care. It's posted." 45. I was not doing 45 on I-70. I, I, it wasn't like I was doing 100, but I had a, I had a ticket. It doesn't matter how good you are. There is only one who lived sinless, who can be our high priest. And as a result, in Hebrews 7, he can be our substitute. So that's the really cool thing about Je and, the, and the argument that's being laid out in Hebrews, not just in chapter 5, but most of the book of Hebrews, is that he's our high priest who laid himself on the altar. He allowed his blood to be poured out and then laid himself on the altar. He's our substitute. Hebrews 7, 27. Who needeth not daily, as those high priests to offer up sacrifice. 
first for his own sins and then for the people's. So, so he's actually here, the, the author, Paul, in the book of Hebrews is, is drawing, let's, let's go back uh, to verse, um, verse, wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him. Seeth, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. For such an high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. Who needeth not daily, as the priests in the Old Testament, to offer up sacrifice. Notice what they had to do before they could offer up sacrifice for others. They had to offer up sacrifice for their own sins. And then once for the people, or then for the people. For, and then it goes back to colon, indicates he's going back to G, the topic of Jesus. For this he did once when he offered up himself. When Jesus offered up for himself on the altar as a sacrifice, it took care of all sins. And if you're of the persuasion, uh, some people will call it reformed, some people call it Calvinistic. If you're of that persuasion, let me just say, all is all. He paid for all sins. He paid a penalty for people that would reject him. We can have a, a, a nice, friendly, loving, brotherly debate over that uh, over coffee at some point if, if, that's a, uh, if that's your persuasion. Notice in Hebrews 9.26, For then he must... <clears throat> for then must he have often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world he, uh, hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He didn't have to keep doing it. He did it once by the sacrifice of himself. So he was our high priest, but he was our, also our, our sacrifice or our substitute. So Jesus, more than anyone else, and I've, I've thrown out, a, uh, I think there are Easter eggs in this message, a couple of times by purpose. I said, the priest was the only one who experienced the sacrifice. Well, maybe, maybe the other is the, that which was sacrificed. So there's only two things that, that experienced the sacrifice most closely. The priest and that which was sacrificed. Those two things. So, Jesus experienced the sacrifice. He became obedient unto death, according to Philippians 2. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Obedient here is the fact that he was submitted. He did submit himself. He was obedient but what we think of, I, I think we read this and think he was obedient to death. He was submitted to death. That's the thing. He was obedient until or as far as death. He remained obedient to God up until the point that he died. And part of the reason that's really impressive is because God the Father had to turn his back on him. We have a previous lesson about that. If you want to go, uh, go look, we don't have time to, to dig into that. But that separation that Jesus felt for the first time in all eternity, that he felt separation, true separation from the Father, because the Father had to turn his back on Jesus who was paying for the sins of the world. Not because he didn't love him, but actually because he did love him. So this is actually pointing... 
Philippians 2 is pointing that Jesus was faithfully obedient up to and including the point of death. He wasn't submitted to death. He was submitted to the will of the Father, which included his death. That's a little bit of a nuanced difference, but an important one doctrinally. Yeah, yeah. No, he was definitely sinless. No doubt. Definitely sinless. Not even one. Not even one. It is hard to grasp. It is really hard to grasp. And it's hard to think about that anybody could be sinless. But if he is not, and scripture tells us that if he was not sinless, then we're still dead in our sins. We don't have any hope if Jesus was was not sinless. So we go back to our question. Oh, oh so, so let me finish. So Jesus submitted himself unto death by obedience. He got to that point of death by obedience. Jesus experiences obedience. He goes through obedience firsthand. Okay? So rephrasing, so this is the same slide as before, rephrasing, the, replacing the word learning with gaining knowledge. It's really, though he were a son, yet he experienced obedience by the things he suffered. And I, can, I, I believe in the time I have left, I can, I can support this concept biblically. Look at Genesis 30, verse 27. For I have learned by experience that the Lord hath blessed me for thy sake. In Jeremiah 10, 2, Thus saith the Lord, Learn not the way of the heathens. He's not saying... Don't, don't go to the heathen and sit down and take notes and learn about them. He's like, don't experience the way they live. You'll do that just fine on your own. You don't have to learn that, right? A kid does not have to learn how to lie. A kid just knows how to do that. If you've ever, you're like, I don't lie. Well, you did as a kid. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how many times I've been around parents. Probably even happened in our, whoo. Did you poo-poo your pants? I mean, the evidence says otherwise. The evidence says otherwise. Hey, I can smell it. Right. The evidence says otherwise. You don't have to learn the way of the heathen, but he's saying, thus saith the Lord, learn not the way. Don't experience it. Don't 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 wallow in it. Don't don't take a dip in the pool of the way of the heathen. Look at Matthew eleven twenty nine. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Does that mean somebody sitting with a with a pad and pencil and saying, "Oh, Jesus, Jesus does this. Jesus says we should do that." No, he's like experience a relationship with me. Experience me. Learn of me. Philippians four eleven. Not that I speak with in respect of want. For I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I have experienced, right? And that's, I, I'm trying to use a different word, this experience for learned. Because of the fact that we don't commonly, in today's vernacular, think of this concept of learning, or let me start my sentence over. We think of learning today, in today's vernacular, as gaining knowledge. As now I understand something I didn't previously understand. Okay? If you take that phrase, I now understand something I didn't previously understand, 
you're getting dangerously close to learning by experience because Jesus experienced something he had never before experienced. Okay? He was obedient up to death, unto death. Okay? So, that brings us back to this. So I think we can check this one off, that how is it that Jesus learned obedience being God? Well, because learning is a little bit different. So this brings us to our last question. Is this because, or is this because his perfection and glory is something he willingly gave up for us? And again, because of the, 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 the posturing of the question, it's a little bit off, but, but I do want to spend some time on this again in the few minutes, that what makes Jesus worthy? Turn over to Revelation chapter 5. This is, I sometimes get choked up reading this. I don't think I'm going to today, but there have been times when I just read Revelation chapter 5 where I, I weep. Notice, we'll start in verse 1. And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne, so God, a book written within and on the backside sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven, nor in earth, neither under the earth, able to open the book, well, or neither to look thereon. And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, say, uh, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth unto all the earth. And he came and he took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when the, he had taken the book, the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the land, lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain, thou wast redeemed us, to God by the blood out of uh, by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. I mean, it's pretty amazing to me. It goes all the way down into verse um, verse twelve, saying with a loud voice, "Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing." Why is that? Well, it comes down to one thing. The conclusion is actually found in verse thirteen. Read it with me. And every creature which is under heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in, there, in them heard I saying... No, stop for a second. John... Okay. Yes. And every creature which is under heaven and on such as are in the sea, and all that are in them heard him saying. That's a, that's a crazy thing to think about. All of them heard. And what did they hear? Blessing and honor and glory and power be 
unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. The definition of Jesus as the slain him, the sacrifice, is what brings him uh, honor and glory. Wow. There is only one thing in eternity that will not be perfect. You will, you will be perfect. You will, you know, you hear people say at funerals all the time, you know, they, this person has put off corruption. They've put off mortality. They've put on incorruption. They've put on immortality. They're going to be perfect in heaven. They no longer have that limp. They no longer battle diabetes. They no longer whatever. whatever. They're perfect. And it's true. But there is one who will not be perfect for all eternity. And that's the lamb, according to verse 6, that stood a lamb as it had been slain. He will carry the marks of his sacrifice for all eternity. He didn't just sacrifice coming down to earth and leaving heaven, spend some time here and go right back and sit on his throne. He went back fundamentally different. He went back with, with, with nail piercings in his hands and his feet and a piercing on his side. He will be as he was slain for all eternity. That's what makes him different. He learned, he experienced obedience up to death. And that alone sets him apart from any other God, any other faith based that I, or faith, uh, faith you know, uh, religion or anything that I've ever seen. No one else was willing to die for me and to give up the perfect eternity for, for my sins. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time. We just ask that you take that which uh, I believe you prepared my heart to share. And Lord, thank you for the question. Thank you for the fact that um, someone was willing enough to, to be transparent and put this out there and to, 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 to learn, right? Uh, that Jesus didn't learn a concept, but he had an experience that he had never had before. He experienced obedience unto death. He had never had to be obedient like that. And he was willing to be. And Lord, I thank you for his uh, obedience. Thank you, Jesus, for your faithfulness all the way up to including the death of the cross. And um, the separation from the Father and paying for my sin, for these folks' sin, the sin of the entire world. And Lord, thank you for the free gift that lays before us. Uh, for those that are just simply willing to pick it up, those that are willing to say, I am a sinner and I know that you have offered your salvation. It is that simple. And if there's anybody here 